0: Namo Tasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambodasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambodasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambodasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. So, this evening, I thought to try and answer one of the things that we touched upon yesterday. was how does Vipassana, um, or what is it that Vipassana does to help us to uh, get rid of our Unwholesome conditioning. So in other words, what's its therapy? Uh, you know, at a mental, at a mental heart level. <coughs> and uh, there are three ways in which the Buddha categorizes these uh, unfortunate conditionings. The first he calls the Anusaya, which is translated as proclivities. They're basically inclinations or tendencies. The next one are the Kilesa, which is translated as defilements. And the third one is the five hindrances that we deal with when we're meditating. So they're just ways of looking at the same problem, although they have different um, accents. Um, when he's talking about Anusaya, these tendencies, I think he gets very close to our... Idea of things being repressed or suppressed just as um, in our understanding we ignore we don't want to see certain parts of ourselves painful parts fears griefs all that sort of stuff and we as it were push it out of consciousness turn away from it just ignore it um, and sometimes we keep it down with fear, not wanting to go there, and aversion, because we just don't want to, you know, don't like being in that state. Uh, those things that are suppressed like that, I think, equate to the word Anusaya, these inclinations or tendencies. So they're there, as it were, within the system, and there's no way of knowing what's in the system until it manifests, until something triggers till the button's pressed and then you realise oh I've got that have I Uh, so this word Anusaya as I understand it was later categorised into seven types of Anusaya but in the in the actual discourses the Buddha I think uses it quite loosely as meaning your tendencies you know hidden tendencies things that we're not we're not aware of at all and as you know, sometimes um, we're not aware of characteristics, uh, but other people are. <laughs> and you wonder why everybody's you know, crossing the street when, you, when you're coming down, you know. So <clears throat> these uh, proclivities, anyway, became categorised. It does actually say it's in there. It comes from the Diganikai, the long, the long um, discourses. So I don't know when that... Uh, categorisation came but um, the, there's, there's a sort of feeling sometimes that anusai just means tendencies your, your, your unwholesome tendencies and uh, I don't think any of them will come as a surprise the first one is this sensuous greed so it's greed for the pleasures that the sense bases give us, that's pretty straightforward indulgence, greed. Uh, So that's always there, there's a potential. That's the point. It's always there as a potential. And um, the next one is a grudge. Which you could put down to sort of aversion really, but holding on to something. A grudge. That's what it's translated as. The other three are more to do with mental states, the way we think about things rather than feel about things. Speculative opinions, holding on to views and opinions. You know, I'm right, everybody else is wrong. It's that sort of, yeah? The other one is sort of sceptical doubt, and we'll come to that in more detail when we do the um, hindrances. Uh, and just very quickly, that's not the same as questioning something, having wondering whether something's right or wrong. And that's the sort of mind the Buddha would have us develop, actually. So that makes us investigate. What skeptical doubt does is it stops you from investigating, stops you from even going near it because, well, you don't believe it. There's a lot of rubbish. I was once leading a retreat and somebody was a, a biology student. And he'd come to the very firm view uh, that there was only the body. You know, that emotions, thoughts, consciousness and all that were simply uh, effects of the mind, uh, the brain. You know, neurons and stuff like that. And as I began teaching, and one of the teaching, of course, to separate the body and mind, um, with the suggestion that there's even another quality that we refer to as divana and he couldn't hack it he'd come to meditate which i think what he meant by was to cool out you know chill out calm <laughs> and so that was it and i saw him again he left i was after a day or two so i thought well that's the way it is ditty wrong um, speculative opinions skeptical doubt um, and this conceit so the conceit is you know, normally split into three types. I am better than you. That's the normal people, that's what normal people think of conceit, that I'm better than you. Uh, but the obverse is true, or the opposite is true, rather. Um, I'm worse than you, see? So even that's a conceit. Yeah? I might feel good about that. I am worse than you. <laughs> uh, it's, sort of, it's a sort of um, downing oneself, isn't it? But it's to do with comparing, constantly comparing who we are. And the other one's more subtle. Um, I'm equal to you. Now, we're only equal um, to people who think like us. So it's a sort of subtle conceit. Because I have you as an equal to me, it means that all the people who aren't equal to us must be either better than us or worse. <laughs> it's just a group identity. And that happens all the time, doesn't it? That's why people join groups, religious groups, political groups. And they say, you know, we are, I mean, now the election. They're all saying it, you know. We've got it right, everybody else got it wrong. (laughs) So that's the uh, conceit business. The next one is this continuing, this craving for continued existence. In other words, we want to keep living. We don't want to die. It's as simple as that. You want to just keep going and going. Um, And that's of course a very deep desire within us. I mean that's a real obsessive thing. As you know when illness, any serious illness approaches us or a hint of death, even somebody we know can put the fear of God in us. I mean, (laughs) you know, who dies and you think, oh my, especially when they're your age group, you know, or your age, that's even worse. And so you get that, uh, that the, you know, the, the craving, the desire for continued existence. And the final one is the usual basis upon which all this is built on. is ignorance, right? This word avijja is a bit strange because it, it literally means not knowing. Not knowing. It's not really ignorance in the sense of you should have known, you know, or you're stupid. It's a very neutral state you know i did find a word actually which translates it rather well nescience but nobody knows it and i didn't know it until i found it in the oxford english dictionary <laughs> <laughs> so there's no but bo- no point in going around calling it nescience everybody will say what's that and he said it was a sort of <laughs> so <laughs> what's the point <laughs> anyway um these are listed anyway the sevens so you see there there's something to do with there are two to do with the, with attitude: the greed and the hatred. It's the usual split: greed and aversion. It's just put slightly different. There are three to do with the way we think, which rebounds back onto this. The final one: ignorance, the wrong views, the sceptical doubt, and the conceit. Um, the sceptical doubt is also based on a fear. I mean, most of these, like you know. Uh, will be based on some sort of attitude, but you can see that they're more mental attitudes than anything else. And the craving for continued existence is a projection of craving, really, just another form of craving. The Buddha in the Four Noble Truths talks of three cravings, the sensual desire, the craving for existence, continued existence, and the craving for non-existence. That sometimes uh, kits people, but Suicide, it's a kind non existence, you see. And in our own little way, every time we use sleep to uh, get rid of a certain, uh, you know, down feeling or go for a sleep or something, it just, just follows it. That is also a form of getting rid of yourself. See? And again, we'll come to that when we come to the five uh, hindrances. So, uh, the reason I mention this is to give you to let you know that in the Buddha's teaching there's also these potentials that lie within the mind um, which to me is akin to something which suppressed or repressed or something like that but the Buddha's teaching is always has an ethical bias whereas our modern way of thinking of it is more like diseases you know mental diseases mental, mental health So in a sense it's more neutral But uh, the Buddha would really bring us back down to the fact that a a lot of our problems are created by unwholesome decisions. But you can't say all of them are. I mean, fear, you know, if if somebody frightens you a great deal when you're a child, you can't really call that sort of an ethical thing. But later on, when you become aware of your fear, when you become more self-reflexive, about the age of 16 or 18 onwards, then in a sense you have to take responsibility for it and do something about it and in that sense it becomes an ethical problem. Ethical in the widest sense of that term, you know, not to be confused with evil. You know? So for instance, an attachment that um, a mother has for the child, a child has for the mother, you can call that evil, see, but the attachment is actually causing problems. Especially when it's confused with with love. So when these begin to rise into consciousness, then there is this other (coughs) category which is called the Kilesa. And when you read uh, Eastern writers, I'm thinking especially somebody like Mahabua, you know, he'll use things like kill the Kilesa (laughs) So really sort of heavy, you know, give it a good nothing. Uh, but I'm not so sure that's a skillful way for us anyway urging people to kill the killer. and these are defilements so uh, there are ten of these and again you won't be surprised by any of them and some of them of course mirror these uh, underlying tendencies so the first one is greed and the second one hatred so you've always got that split and the third one is delusion right now, um, this not knowing, and we're talking about consciousness here, we're, con- we're talking about that which knows. Unfortunately, the word consciousness these days is getting really confused because they've decided to study it. If they haven't <laughs> 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 Before it was just meant to know, but now they... Uh, to me, when I read some of the writers, they seem to confuse it with the mind in terms of content. But uh, in, the Buddha's, in the Buddha's teaching, it's just unknowing just uh, an act of an act of cognition which also in, which uh, really it's a discriminative consciousness is the being able to tell this from that that's that when we talk about the five aggregates which some of you may know the body perceptions feelings all our emotionals all our emotions and thought patterns and consciousness so this consciousness at the end of the line is that part of us which is able to discriminate, to know the difference, to discern, and it's part of the intellect. So uh, that's deluded. You see, there's a there's a delusion at a deeper level which we call this not knowing, and that's referring to this real deeper intelligence, this intuitive intelligence. Which we are contacting when we do vipassana, when you become the observer. See, and thought has stopped, so that there's something, um, something about that intelligence which sees clearly, sees directly, doesn't have to go through thought or anything like that. So there's something about the way it's looking which isn't quite right, and what it forms is a fundamental delusion, and that fundamental delusion is to believe we are this body and mind. In other words, humans. It's a big (laughs) delusion. Conventionally speaking, of course, we are human. But when we look deeper, and you try and define what a human being is, you you don't come up with much. Or you come up with little bits and pieces that are tacked onto each other. And and that always splits into a relationship. So we're seeking happiness, so where, where we see happiness, we greed for it. When we see unhappiness, we we try to get rid of it, annihilate it. So there's always this basic split that we're working with. And then, if put it in the other way around here, there's conceit, speculative views, and sceptical doubt. Depends how you want to list them. So that's the way it manifests in our thought patterns of conceit, uh, thinking I'm right and everybody else is wrong, and sceptical doubt. When people approached the Buddha and asked him questions such as, you know, what's your understanding of karma? He was sort of clever enough to ask them, well, what what do you understand by (laughs) So I'll throw the question back at them. And of course, they'd be very happy to tell him what they thought. And then as they would explain what they thought, he would then uh, point out to them some some, uh, wrong thinking, some wrong understanding, you see. And it was only when they were able to drop their view... That uh, their minds were malleable and easy to receive, and that's when he would offer them his his teaching. They so wouldn't. It's like he, if you went to the Buddha and said, "What do you think of karma?" He'd say, "Well, this is what I think." He'd <laughs> he sort, of, he sort of tap your nose with all his thoughts. You know, so he's very clever to first of all, you know, ask the person and sort of play on their on their conceit, really. You know, I'm right, you're wrong, and then to uh, to undermine their position by showing its, its illogicality or the fact it doesn't work or something. And then, when they were just right, he would hit them with the Four Noble Truths, you see. <laughs> 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 Didn't work all the time. You know, some went away clicking, clicking their tongues. There's a fellow called, uh, well, he's called Dandapan, but he described him, he's a stick in hand. And he says, What, you know, what do you teach, Is he? And the Buddha gives him a cryptic reply, I can't remember. And he goes away clicking his tongue. So he obviously didn't, didn't particularly like that. Uh, the next are more to do with what we come across in the five hindrances. So mental torpor and restlessness. Mental torpor and restlessness. Uh, and we'll come to that in a bit. Yeah. Then there's two things which are rather interesting. Uh, because we tend not to think quite this way. Um, shamelessness and lack of moral dread, or unconscientiousness. So, in other words, uh, a big defilement would be not to have shame or dread of consequences, which we could we could just say guilt for that. Although guilt has other meanings. Uh, <clears throat> generally speaking one would talk about shame and guilt as being unwholesome things people shouldn't have or you know <clears throat> and a lot of I read once therapy book which seems to say that all our problems is because, because of the shame that was poured upon us when we were kiddies and stuff like that you know um, now I'm not saying that there isn't for want of be a better word neurotic guilt and shame shame that uh, really is just perhaps inbred from childhood and whatnot But in the Buddha's teaching, shame and dread are actually guardians. Because when we do something which is unwholesome, um, we're letting the side down, we're letting ourselves down. And that letting ourselves down, that loss of self-esteem, especially in other people's eyes, is what we call shame. It's not a very pleasant feeling. And a more lesser intense feeling, although it need not be, is embarrassment. I always like to tell the story about um, Sir Walter Raleigh. He was at the court of uh, Queen Elizabeth, and presumably as he was bowing, he unfortunately let off a rather loud fart. (laughs) Do you know this? And he was so embarrassed, (laughs) can you imagine, to the Queen, that he did not return to court for a year. And when he did, the Queen Elizabeth greeted him as, we welcome you to our court. You know, we're glad to see you, Sir Walter. We have forgot the fart. (laughs) (laughs) That would be brilliant. So (laughs) these sorts of of embarrassments can be uh, almost, you know, they can almost be as embarrassing as embarrassing as, as being caught shoplifting or something, which is actually unwholesome, you know a social gaffe, you know. So I, I'm not so sure that the Buddha's referring to that sort of thing, but he's definitely referring to things which are unwholesome. And the lack of moral dread, which we you know, can loosely call guilt, is that if you don't see that there's going to be consequences to unwholesome actions, then of course, why would you not do them? I once uh, I was at the Goenka retreat in uh, India, his big place there, Dhambagiri, and after the retreat, I was sitting uh, on on the grass, and and um, this man sort of joined me, and uh, I just said to him, you know, what do you, well, what work do you do at the time? You know, and he said, well, I'm a theologian. Okay. Well, I've met a theologian before, so I said, <laughs> he's a Catholic theologian. It's amazing, isn't it? A theologian. So I said to him, I asked him, I said, what do you, you know? in terms of uh, Buddhist teaching, what, what, what about God and evil and, and sending to eternal hell for things? You know, I said, what that? And he was of the opinion that no matter what harm you did, once you saw the beatific vision, once you actually were in the presence of God, God's compassion would forgive everything. Which is a beautiful uh, idea. But it occurred to me afterwards, and it said this at the time, it didn't occur to me. Uh, why would anybody stop doing evil if you believe that? You, know, you, s- you mess everybody up, <clears throat> make you a million, kick everybody in the teeth, and then God says, "Oh, you come in here stay forever." So it was. Uh, I think he was probably a little bit, I don't know, confused about it. But that sort of um, person who doesn't have any dread of consequences. Or any shame, uh, you know, is, um, it moves towards criminality. And at worst, it's, it, can, it can be a, a sign of mental illness, can't it? A paranoid. Um, it's a funny thing about paranoia. You, you hate the person. This is, I understand it, you have to check it out. You hate the person. And you project your hatred onto them. And seeing their hatred for you, which they might not have, you're full of fear. And therefore, you have to kill the person who hates you. It's a sort of peculiar thing that happens. Yeah, very strange. So, um, these two things, the Buddha actually calls guardians of society. Because when we actually feel shameful about what we've done, or dread the consequences, and the next time that temptation comes up, you see, they come up, and you say, "Well, I don't want to go down that, I not want to go down that road again." See? So one of the exercises that I say to people I'm, uh, is, you know, when you're eating and you've taken too much food, you see, So there you've got a moral dilemma: Are you going to throw it away? Uh, you know, uh, and waste food, or are you going to eat it and do your body harm. See, so my normal advice in a circumstance like that is to eat it <laughs> and to know you're doing your body harm, and then you know when you come to the next load of food, well, I don't want to, I don't want to harm myself. You see, <laughs> it sometimes works. So there's your uh, two things which are. Uh, um. I think of interest to us. Actually, calling shame and dread guardians of society. Interesting. Huh? So that's it. So <coughs> if I just read through read through those again, then you can compare it, and then we can actually see how we deal with things in in the meditation. So you've got these proclivities, these inclinations: <coughs> greed and grudge, hatred, delusion. Hatred and, uh, sorry, greed and hatred. Speculative opinion, sceptical doubt, conceit. So here it's turned around. Conceit, speculative views and sceptical doubt. And then you have this uh, craving for continued existence, which is not. That, in a sense, produces everything else, that craving. And there's the ignorance, conceit. And on this side you have uh, much the same. Added to that is the mental torpor, restlessness, shamelessness, lack of moral dread. And the ignorance in the Anusaya as a potential manifests, (coughs) excuse me, the ignorance in the Anusaya as a proclivity manifests in the Kilesa, defilement, as a delusion. So those are your um, that gives you a sort of idea as to um, the basic uh, conditionings that we have within us on the dark side yeah uh, we 'll do the light side another time <laughs> so now we're stu- we, you know what we come across in our meditation uh, is a different way of categorizing all this, which are the the five hindrances, and the first one. I mean they're very straightforward there, there's, the, there's all to do with greed and wanting and craving there's all to do with hatred, aversion and things like that there's the dullness and lethargy there's this restlessness and remorse uh, where I think you can, you can count in things like guilt and, and shame and finally sceptical doubt and when, as, as each of these come up they will always manifest as a thought pattern Either a thought pattern or what you're doing. So when you're eating, it'll, it, these things manifest. When you're sitting in meditation in, in the quietness, um, there's nowhere for these to go except up into the head. Right? You you can't express them anymore outwardly because you keep them the silence and the stillness. And so they create these dreams. See? So that's the first thing to recognize, that these mental uh, defilements develop themselves through the mind. And not only in meditation, but also in daily life. So that's why we might be thinking about, um, you know, uh, getting into an argument with somebody. And we'll do that before we actually get into an argument with them. You know, there'll be some mentation before we do it. So everything in the Buddha's understanding begins at the mind level. And from the mind, you get that expression out into words and, and actions. So here... Um, when we when we come out of a of a fantasy, come out of a of a dream sequence, um, that noting of it is so important because that's a recognition. And as I say, it's nice to do two notes. It's like you're reinforcing it with an acknowledgement. This is what the mind's doing. And uh, by turning away from that, and this is what's so important. Um, We're no longer developing that state because the mental state can only develop itself through thought and imagination. So when you're turning away from something that the mind is producing, that's not a suppression, that's not a repression. You see? But it's only not a suppression and not a repression if you then contact the actual feeling which is empowering it, And it's getting in contact with that and allowing it as a feeling, as an emotion, to ex- to express itself, that's where the therapy lies. Yeah? The next thing to understand is that the history which lies behind a particular mental state has is not the actual cause of that mental state. And therefore... Dealing with that mental state does not mean we have to seek history. The Buddha puts it as an image of the person who gets shot with an arrow. And they come to heal, they come to take the arrow out and do something with the wound, and he says to leave it alone until he knows who shot it, why he shot it, who made the arrow, and of course he's dead before <laughs> well they can come and well they can get him. So here we are, we're angry, and we're thinking, you know, why am I angry? Was it because, you know, my mother hit me with a banana when I was three? And you keep going back, and you keep going back, and, and of course it's all wanting to know things that are absolutely irrelevant to the actual mental state. And the reason why it's not connected is because all these mental states are reactions to a given situation by an attitude so it 's coming from the heart itself that 's why some people enrage at uh, a little insult whereas others can just palm it off you know our differences lie within the heart you see so when um, When an emotion comes up, and a mental state comes up, it doesn't matter what it is, on the whole gamut of human misery, when that comes up, uh, we have to remind ourselves that this has been created by me. It's not that the other person, or whatever whatever caused it, inverted commas, whatever caused it, um, didn't have a role to play. Of course it did. But the actual way we reacted to it or responded to it is act- is, is dependent on us. So, if somebody is cruel to somebody, um, that cruelty can't get through, can't get beyond the body or what's actually being heard at the at the eardrum or felt at the at the surface of the heart. So, if somebody is shouting at us, we can hear it. We can hear the voice. Eh? Like me with that chicken today. See, the chicken heard the voice. <laughs> get out of this room. And um and the feeling, you see. So I gave it a real, you know, get out. And <laughs> the chicken knew it was not wanted. So he got this <laughs> so you've got this um, hearing. So the hearing is telling you, you know, this is anger. And you get the feeling of the person, they're angry, yeah. And uh uh That you can call the catalyst, that's actually pressing certain buttons within us. If those buttons didn't exist, then the anger and the feel of the anger would stay just at the doors of perception, say where we actually receive it, you see. But because we have a conditioning to react to anger, then anger arises in us, out of us, out of an attitude towards that person's anger. So the anger we're left with when they're gone is completely self-made it is roots within our own uh, hearts Um, that means that we cannot blame others for our mental states and it releases us from wanting to blame them that doesn't mean to say they get away scot free because remember in their anger they are developing a state of mind they are developing a conditioning which burns within them it's not as though they get away with it or something they've got their own mental state and of course they'll come across somebody who really can't handle their anger and and they get get punched on the nose or something (laughs) I mean you know it's like we're in the world we're in a world of of reaction and responses and at some point uh, we'll do something which for us has become habitual which you know rebounds back on us so we're not letting somebody off by, by by describing this sort of psychology by saying, well, you know, my anger is not their problem, my anger is my problem. So, when we come off any type of dream, any type of fantasy, and we come back into the heart to actually feel the emotional content, what we're experiencing is a product of an attitude within a given situation. So it's all ours, it's all ours. And... It is disappointing at first not you know, to recognize that you can't blame somebody else's. It's always nice to find somebody to blame. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, suddenly we're liberated. Because if other people actually cause my suffering, I'm going to have to get rid of them. Huh? I'm going to have to, you know, like if, if, if another person really does cause my suffering and they cause him, then I have no option. I've got to, I've got to annihilate them. And so the only way I'm going to attain my own personal happiness. <laughs> and of course that's unfortunately the way most people, most, most human beings think, isn't it you know, that's, that's what you, you know so it liberates us from that and it also liberates us now completely to do something with it because when I recognize that it's me that's developed these mental states then it's me that can undo them ah. And, of course, the, uh, the whole process of mental purification, specifically through Vipassana, but also just through um, you know, not indulging these things in daily life and acting from goodwill, we, we undermine them anyway. So we can, you know, we can change our, per- our personality, we can change our characters. There's no, that's not a problem. Uh, and we'll do it the quicker, the more we take responsibility for us, for what we've um, engendered in our own heart. So when it comes to these first two, the greed and the hatred, whenever you see a fantasy in the mind, a, a story in the mind, you would be quick enough to say, well, that, you know, that's greed. Even though it's very enticing, even though you want to get into it, even though you want to develop it, just really cut into it and say, no. And no, you're not doing yourself any harm. See? And then you come into the body and you feel that state. And sometimes they're, they're very loud, they're very painful, you know really and you, but if the longer you can stay with it the more the heart's actually healing like, you, can, you can think of it as a sore in the heart you know, as, a, as, a, as a postulating sore and it needs to get rid of the poison before it can heal itself so that has to be born that has to be you have to be able to bear with it to sit amidst the flames and that's one of the reasons the Buddha calls patience, See, patience endurance the highest form of ascetic practice. See? So it's more difficult to sit with our own burning than, than, uh, you know, than to, to sit on a, on a bed of nails. You know, that's external. You can do all the ascetic practices you want, but the worst one that you have to, we have to do is sit in the bonfire within us. See? So these two, the, the opening, the, the, all, everything to do with anything to do with that we crave for, wish for in that wrong way, and anything we hate, dislike, even depression is a form of aversion. Yeah, boredom. You know, they all—they're all there within aversion. Um, have to be felt. See, have to be felt. And sometimes it's difficult because uh, they're so loud and they're so constant that sometimes you think, "Well, this is never going to end." You get that feeling of this is, this is forever. <laughs> But, if you hang on in there and you begin to see it sort of release, you begin to see it sort of die away a bit, then that gives you the confidence that yeah this is this is the path of healing you know, and occasionally, with a bit of luck, you might see that energy turn and present its opposite uh, one one what might be something like loneliness, so loneliness has all these little things about nobody loves me, and i 'm hateful and why should anybody love me? All that sort of, all that sort of rubbish. And it's, it's painful to be lonely. It's, it's not a, a pleasant place to be at all. And instead of rushing out and calling your friend and saying, Look, I'm really lonely tonight. Out to get, <laughs> instead of seeking that sort of escape in that way, to just stay with the feelings of that unlovability, you know, unwantedness, you know, orphaned. Um, If you just stay with that feeling in the heart, you don't let the mind wander, in the heart, it might just be that as it passes away, as it sort of dissolves, there comes this lovely moment of just being happy with being on your own. And that's solitude. And then you're seeing that actually, loneliness is a lie, because you're never less alone, never less lonely than when you're happy with being by yourself because just doesn't occur okay? and one of the um, advices that, uh, advice that the, the Buddha gives is to fare lonely as a rhinoceros now I don't know much about rhinoceros <laughs> or right. I don't know which one to use but it, um, I, was, I was once on safari it was only, only one time I just happened to be in the right place and we did see a rhinoceros, I remember, and it was actually alone. <laughs> there, was, there was nobody around. Like, I mean, it's a huge beast. You know, you don't want to get near one. And the, I remember the driver, because I remember one. somebody said, come on, let's go and have a look at it, you know, big said, Whoa, he said, no. <laughs> Once that thing moves, you know, it's like a tank. Anyway, that's his advice to fare lonely as a rhinoceros. The next one is all this uh, dullness and lethargy that everybody has a huge dollop of. And um, that's not to be confused with tiredness, with real tiredness, yeah? And we need sleep, everybody knows that. But um, this dullness, this sort of stupor in the mind, you know, it feels like porridge, and you know, it's sort of a soupy mix in the head, and the heaviness of the body, see? So one is to do with the brain and the mind, and the way that you sort of can't think anymore. And the other one to do with the body, which is sort of a a lethargy. And um, you can have the one or the other, and most times you have both. (laughs) It's sort of a general state. And that's, of course, a consequence of seeking happiness in oblivion. As we said at the beginning of the the talk, it's a form of annihilation. So when you're a bit fed up, when you're tired, off you go to sleep. But it's not only that. Being asleep is, in a a paradoxical way, rather pleasant. We seek sleep, you know. Now, we wouldn't do that if we thought that we wouldn't wake up. (laughs) There's a a presumption that I'm going to bed tonight and tomorrow I'll wake up, you see. If the doctor said you fall asleep and you're never going to wake up, that would be a real pain. (laughs) That would be. (laughs) You'd be putting pins in your eyes. So there's something about sleep which is delightful, especially that falling asleep. You see, so, you know the way we actually say it: falling asleep. You know, like falling in love, like falling. You know, just sort of sort of letting go. You know, it's lovely. You see. So there's something very pleasant about it; and one feels refreshed. But if one actually does it also to escape some unpleasant escape, <coughs> then there's even that. Then it's being used as a suppression. See. And this stuff always comes up as a heaviness in the body later on as a feeling of depression itself. So, dullness and lethargy, after two or three days on a retreat, definitely the fourth day, if you're feeling tired during the day and you've had a good sleep, you know, then, you know, really name it for what it is. And the way we counter that is by always doing the opposite. So... (coughs) If you're, you know, if you you get it heavy, open, you know, lift the spine, open the eyes, look straight into the light of the window. Uh, if it gets to stand up, and even then, you might be so heavy that you just go for a walk. Now, whatever you're doing, you're accompanying it. You're accompanying, you're not trying to get rid of it. As soon as you try and get rid of something, you're putting aggression back into the system. So you're walking with it, and it's a real mental state. It's as important as anxiety, depression and everything else and you just take the big fat dog for a walk so you just keep going come on come on you, so you just keep one step after the other just keep going up and down up and down up and down. And of course just like all these things it begins to evaporate begins to loosen up yeah begins to loosen up and it can hit you hard all these kilesa all these um hindrances and defilements can hit you very hard at various times in your life and everybody has their own particular constellation of it some people suffer a Horribly from sceptical doubt, you know, especially the me. You know, everybody else can do it, but not me. You know, I'm 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 not good enough or something. But um, from my experience with meditators and myself, uh, dullness and lethargy is definitely (laughs) well, it's just there. It goes back a long way. the The next one is the opposite, the restlessness. So that's the mind. Sometimes the mind can be so restless you think you're going berserk absolutely berserk it's absolutely terrible but you have to be patient with it because that's the energy of thinking you know and sometimes the dullness and lethargy just flips and you find yourself running around you know quite like that chicken and sometimes the, the restlessness is in the body you're sitting there the mind's alright but you just get this tremendous sort of feeling of wanting to move you know so there it's good to move up and down the body just move around the body move around the body you see just feeling where the restlessness is And that sort of draws a bit of energy back into the mental, into the observing. And the same you can do with the dullness and lethargy. You can move around the brain, around the head part here. You can move around the body. And that keeps you awake. And by moving around restlessness, especially if you move, if you go the opposite way. So for dullness and lethargy, if you go up the body, wherever the attention is, there's always energy, you see. So if you move up the body, it actually lifts a bit of energy. Go from the toes up to the top of the head. If you're feeling restless, go down from the top of the head down to the toes. So, you know, it has a sort of way of bringing energy with it, attention. See. And um, don't move. That's basically it. So with dullness and lethargy, you move. And with lethargy, you don't. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Very simple instruction. And just hang on in there. Wait for it to sort of give and if you don't, fine, okay. It, it's going to come back. You'll have plenty of opportunity to win with this stuff. It's not as though, <laughs> though you failed. You know, like this. say, oh my God, i failed, you know. And running with that is remorse, guilt, shame. You can sort of put all that in. And that makes you very fidgety, you know, guilt, shame, and all that. And when those things come up, yeah, you have to sit with it. Sit with it. And... If something comes up which you feel you can put right, um, perhaps something comes in your mind where you've said some sh- something sharp to somebody and, uh, and upset them. So you make a decision to, as it were, com- you know, to close off that karmic line by just apologising, as simple as that. You know. Whether they accept the apology or not doesn't matter. You know, you've, you've actually cleared it within your own heart. You see, that's where the input, what's important. And then finally, there's this uh, sceptical doubt. So, um, that sceptical doubt is the inability to believe anything. Um, and it's a stopper. It's, it's a killer. You just won't, you won't do anything if you don't have some sort of confidence in it. Yeah. And it can be fear or aversion. Fear, I think, mainly. Yeah. Um, if you're of a very, you know, I'm, I occasionally meet somebody of a very scientific state of mind, uh, frame of mind, um, and everything has to be measurable, you know. So even though you, you know, like um, an alternative medicine, like homeopathy, see, they, they can't they can't understand it. I know. <laughs> they can't understand it. It doesn't, like, there's nothing in the medicine. So it's, you know, it's like, it's all hocus-pocus. And even though you say, well... If it's true medicine, I mean, if it really is true medicine, it'll work whether you believe it or not. It's like an aspirin; whether you believe it or not, it'll work. See? So I'd have a go. You know, no, don't go near it. (laughs) It's like it's a block. You know, just don't go near it. So there are three things that you obviously can be sceptical of: is the, the actual teaching of the Buddha. See. So when we feel sceptical about that, always remember that the Buddha never put it to us as some sort of belief statement, it was always something for us to investigate, to make our own knowledge, see, and that's why we have these three levels of of, uh, knowledge or of understanding, the understanding we get when we hear something, the understanding when we think about what we've heard and it becomes our own intellectual knowledge and the third one is this understanding through insight meditation, through insight, through direct understanding. So he wants, you know, f- uh, in, in in the Buddha's understanding, that is the process of liberation. Belief is a stopper. Just, you just know, like you don't investigate. You don't you just you just bow to the Buddha Rupa, and that's the end of that. But you still end up with you. It's not going to do much for your hindrances mm, or insight. Um, and then there's that. Uh, da- well, there's doubt in the teacher. Heaven forbid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just I can't imagine it, <laughs> but uh, well, there can be. And that, and uh, it, it's like it's a healthy, it's a healthy thing to always question what the teacher actually is saying. You know, it's not to, again. It's not to be taken as you know. But one tries it. You see, one tries it. I remember um, my one one of my teachers. Uh, the main teacher, he said to me, What meditation did you do before? And I said, Zen. He said, Well, they don't meditate. And I said, oh, They don't meditate, uh, Sido. I said, Why is that? He said, Because they keep their eyes open. <laughs> and I said, mm. I said, Well, we keep our ears open. <laughs> <And> so, well, <laughs> no, there's dead silence, you know. <laughs> it's like, it's prejudice, you see. So, I mean, you don't have to believe what a teacher says to you. But it's, uh, it's good to try things out. And if it doesn't work, well, yeah. You know, if you find that there isn't that connection, there isn't, well, yeah. But the one I think that's most pernicious is oneself. One begins to lose confidence in oneself. Often when a person's been doing meditation for a long time and they don't see much progress, you get this coming up, you know. But usually they've taken a very short-term view. And when you actually ask them to look back over the years to where they were when they first started, and they, you know, they can, they can normally see it's progress. However, everybody i that's happened to, I've talked to, sees progress. It's just it's never progressive enough. That's all. One expected to be fully liberated by now. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, it's like it's like just, you just see what what our presumptions are really. And remember that the path isn't this one direct upward slope. You know, it's up and down, up and down, up and down. Uh, and it's just every soft so when you get to a sort of hill you can look back and see that the hills that you've actually are actually lower than where you are <laughs> like you haven't gone down so it's a it's a case of when, when you feel that lack of confidence getting nowhere what's the point all that sort of stuff again just name it you know give it its true name the sceptical death so that's our task anyway that's what we're that's what we're working with on the on the negative side and or everything that I, we've been talking about, of course, is is what therapy tries to deal with. So, in a sense, the way we're dealing with this not only brings us this this spiritual understandings, which are which are the true liberation. It's also helping the heart to purify itself. Okay? Sometimes, when you listen to certain teachers, actually. You get the impression that, you know, uh, Vipassana isn't enough. That you've got to have therapy. In fact, I know certain teachers who say that. And uh, I dare say there are people for whom walking into meditation would be just too much. But I think the main reason for that is lack of faith. It's not our culture to be Buddhist. It's not our culture to have that absolute faith in, in the teacher like that. And if you don't, of course, then that undermines everything you do. I think that's one reason anyway. In the East, there people who are brought up Buddhists, they have just this natural faith. So when the teacher says, you've got to go through this pain, they go through it. You know? not everybody of course but I mean I'm I'm just saying there's that natural sort of faith in in things um and I dare say that there are certain things which uh Buddhism doesn't tackle really in a particularly um I mean like madness I mean there's not much in Buddhism of how to at least in Theravada Buddhism how to deal with madness frankly that's done by local shamans um the local culture, you know, the ancient culture, that are usually better at dealing with that than, than Buddhist monks, anyway. But for the ordinary person, so for the ordinary person with their uh, with our usual uh, little neuroses and stuff, um, it's not that therapy won't help. It does, I think. That I think some of them are very skillful, but it's not necessary. And just in my own personal practice, I mean, I've never had any therapy. Um, Childhood traumas came up. Two childhood traumas cleared out the heart. And this is exactly what Freud talks about, that these traumas deeply hidden within the psyche, they're causing all these whirlpools around here, which, which you're dealing with, not recognizing that there's some deeper disease underneath. Uh, but it wasn't easy, that's all. <laughs> it's not easy to uh, to really, you know, squeeze uh, the boil and get your thumbs into the side and give it a real... <laughs> till it, til it pops, you know what I mean? And, um, but what I'm saying is that, yes, you, you don't actually need therapy, but... A lot of these mod therapies, I think, are very skillful, very helpful. And complementary. Most of them complementary. So, that's it. That's, um, that's what you're tackling with. And, and it's up to us to just develop our skills. This is one side of the skills of meditation that we're developing. Hmm? So I can only hope. My words have been of some assistance. May you, in your wise tackling of the hindrances, overcome them, allow them to dissipate and achieve a full purification of the heart and liberation sooner rather than later.